This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In a 6-3 decision with an unusual alignment of justices, the Supreme Court handed a victory to longtime illegal immigrants this week with a ruling that turned on a single word, the smallest word in the English language at that. What does the word A mean in the term a notice to appear? Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion and had telegraphed in oral arguments that it means one notice. I would have thought the government might have uh, taken the hint from an eight-justice majority in prayer that a notice of appeal means what it, what it seems to mean. Let me ask you this. What if, what if I had a law clerk and I said in my, manu- in my law clerk manual, I want a bench memorandum analyzing the facts, the law, and your proposed disposition? And instead of providing that, my law clerk provided uh, three separate memos, uh, each detailing various views of the facts, four more on the law, and then, uh, I don't know, a couple on proposed dispositions. Would that be a bench memorandum? The answer Justice Gorsuch was looking for was no. Those nine separate memos would not be a bench memorandum. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight and the former head of the Office of Immigration Litigation at the Justice Department. Leon, tell us how the notice to appear figures into the process for deportation proceedings. Whenever the government wants to place someone into removal proceedings, it begins by giving them a piece of paper, and that piece of paper is called the notice to appear. That's a form that looks the same every single time. You can Google it and see it online. And that notice to appear is supposed to have a date and time and location, and there's actually little blanks on the form wherein you fill out the date and time and location of the hearing. So in this case, the notice, like in honestly hundreds of thousands of other cases, did not have the date and time and location where to appear at the immigration court hearing. Because what often happens in these cases is when the government apprehends someone, especially in the southern border, it doesn't have time to figure out where the hearing is going to be and what date and time it should be at. So it just places to be announced, CBA, on the notice to appear. And then you're supposed to get some notice later that tells you, oh, okay, you moved to Los Angeles or you moved to New York. Here is when your hearing is going to be. And so that's what's been usually happening. But that practice was challenged in this case. So in this case, Augusto Niz Chavez, a Guatemalan immigrant who came to the U.S. illegally in 2005, received his first notice to appear at a deportation hearing eight years later. Explain why the timing is so important here. Well, so here is the issue. So this is about a very small sliver of cases, which are called cancellation of removal cases. And in order to be eligible for cancellation of removal, you have to be someone who's been in the United States for 10 years before you were placed into removal proceedings. And during those 10 years, you had to have basically had a qualifying relative that now is the reason why your removal should be canceled. So you've given birth to a U.S. citizen or you married a U.S. citizen. And in those situations, if you can prove that your removal will cause extreme and unusual hardship. It's usually because that, that relative has some major medical issue or something like that. And if you were to leave 
they would have totally someone not able to defend their interests. And so they'd probably die if you left. You could get this relief called cancellation of removal. And so the question in this case is, well, how do you prove that you have been in the United States for 10 years before your removal proceedings started? And so for people who never were even placed into removal proceedings for 10 years, that's easy enough. But for someone who got a notice that didn't tell them what the date and time of the hearing was, could that notice then stop the clock, so to speak, meaning you were properly placed in removal proceedings before you had established that you lived in the United States for 10 years? And what the court ruled is the answer to that question is no. The only way to stop the clock is to serve that document, the notice to appear, in the proper way, filling in all the blanks with the date and time and location of the hearing. And the focus in the decision was on the Article A in the phrase, a notice to appear. Correct. Meaning, the question was, in this case, did the 10-year period that needed to take place before you were placed at removal proceedings stop the first time you were given any notice, even if it wasn't a complete notice, or did it need to be a complete notice to appear with everything that's required in the notice to appear? And what Justice Gorsuch said is, because it said a, quote, notice to appear, that means it has to be in one document, one notice to appear that has all of the items to it. It can't be that you got this one document, a notice to appear, and that document says PBA to be announced, and then you get another piece of paper later that's not the form called the notice to appear that tells you, hey, your hearing is on October 4th, 2021 at the Houston courthouse. That's not going to work. You actually have to get the document called notice to appear. That's why it says a, quote, notice to appear. And only if you get that document with everything in it that is required by law, have you been properly placed into removal proceedings such that at that moment we stop counting whether you've been in the U.S. for 10 years or not. Justice Gorsuch wrote that the dispute may seem semantic since the justices are basing the decision on the meaning of one word. Isn't it semantic? Well, it's semantic in terms of how you define an article in a statute. But in real life, this is now going to mean hundreds of thousands of individuals who have U.S. citizen children or got married, but they can't change their status because people think when you get married, you can change your status. But that's only true if you overstayed a visa. It's not true if you entered illegally by crossing the border. So for all the people who entered illegally by crossing the border and got married to a U.S. citizen, or for all of the people who have had U.S. citizen children since they acquired illegal status in the United States, for any of those people, they can now move to reopen their case and apply for cancellation of removal. And that will actually have two different benefits. One, they might actually get cancellation of removal, although that's unlikely because there's an annual cap of 4,000 and there's a huge line already. So it's unlikely that that will happen. But what's more likely to happen is that by reopening their removal proceedings, they will no longer have a removal order against them, which means they're back to normal. And so what could then happen, especially for the people whose children will have turned 21 
maybe during the Biden administration, is that once those children turn 21, they can apply for green cards for their parents because the parent doesn't have a pending removal order against them. So this is actually potentially going to lead to the regularization of the status of at least a few thousand people and maybe tens of thousands of people. Let's talk about the lineup. Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. The majority also included Justices Clarence Thomas, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Amy Coney Barrett. The dissent was written by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, joined by Chief Justice John Roberts and Samuel Alito. How do you account for those alliances? I think if you're a textualist, there's no way you could have ruled against what the ruling was in this case. It literally says a notice to appear, and it says in the statute what the notice to appear has to have. The problem is, if you're sort of a practical policy person, you might say, well, my Lord, this pointy-headed sort of conclusion is going to drive us to a point where what is the government supposed to do? There's no way it can know when the hearing is going to be when it first apprehends people, and so this is not practical. And so we can't interpret laws in a way that are not practicable to enforce. But that's not what the Congress intended. The Congress intended that you get a notice to appear. And that notice that tells you where to appear and when is what triggers your removal proceeding. And so what the court said is, even if you think this is not practical, if it's reasonable enough to think why Congress would have wanted you to get that in one notice and not in several notices, because if you lose one of the several notices, then you still don't know when your hearing is. So that's a practical enough reason why you could say Congress asked for one notice. The case is over. That's it. We don't get into these discussions of, well, does one make more sense than the other? The statute clearly reads one notice, and there's a reason why Congress might have all wanted this to be in one notice. So that's the end of the analysis. So let me ask you about the dissent, which also used textualism, but came to a different decision on how to understand the Article A. Right. The dissent was basically making an argument about that there was no practical way to interpret the statute in the way that the people who were challenging this were saying. They First of all, they really were upset that the argument chosen by the majority opinion was not even one that was brief about this issue of A, the letter A meaning singular, they claimed that wasn't even really brief in the case. This was a decision that Justice Gorsuch appeared to just come up with on his own and then was able to rally his five other colleagues around getting it. So that was their first criticism of the decision. But moving forward, what they were really trying to get at is that the A doesn't necessarily mean it's singular. If you say A manuscript, a manuscript comes over courses of time, and so that could be the same thing as the notice to appear, so that there's no reason the A necessarily required a singular notice. And so because it's not practical to expect the government at the border to know when and where everybody's hearing was going to be, why should they have to know that in order to start the removal proceeding? Why should a person get the benefit of these proceedings if the government never served the right document, to which Justice Gorsuch said, well, because that's the way a bureaucracy works. People all the time are punished for not filling out the right forms in the right way. 
So if the government doesn't fill out the right forms in the right way, it should have the same punishment that people get when they don't fill out the right forms in the right way. So what does it tell you that textualism was used to justify both the majority and the dissent? There are textualists on both sides of these arguments, and no matter what ethos or governing principle you use, you'll always be able to get to a different outcome. But at the end of the day, the reason you have the amalgamation of justices that you have in this case is because you have both the practical and the fairness argument and the literal interpretation of the statute argument merged into the same result, which is the compassionate result of this case. And that's rarely the case, but when it happens, that's why you get a 6-3 to three ruling here. So what happens to the Guatemalan immigrant in this case now? So now this person can actually reopen their proceeding and try to make the argument that their deportation would harm a U.S. citizen child because it would lead to extreme and unusual hardship to that U.S. citizen child. The question will be, Will they be early enough in the cap to be able to get one of the 4,000 green cards available each year, or will they have to wait several years? Or will they be able to get a green card from their child eventually when the child turns 21, so long as the court and basically the Biden administration is willing to hold the proceedings in abeyance until the child turns 21, or even administratively close the proceeding, which you can imagine the Biden administration doing in many cases moving forward. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. Coming up next, the justices will confront the confrontation clause. This is Bloomberg. The first Senate hearing for President Joe Biden's judicial nominations seemed to go fairly smoothly. The committee heard from five nominees with Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson attracting most of the attention. Joining me is Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. When did the White House begin vetting judicial nominees? So we learned from the documents that the nominees who were at the most recent Senate Judiciary Committee uh, hearing submitted that the White House started vetting nominees pretty early on. Um, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is Biden's pick for the D.C. Circuit and is kind of thought of as a, a favorite for a potential Supreme Court vacancy, was contacted by the White House on January 26th, which is six days after Biden was inaugurated. We also have, uh, you know, Candace Jackson Akibumi, who was one of the nominees at the hearing, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Wednesday. She was contacted by the White House on January 11th and uh, asked about, you know, the potential vacancy the following day. So the White House is really getting started quite early on this, um, you know, compared to previous administrations. Um, the Trump administration got started fairly early as well with um, their first lower court nominee, Melissa Parr. Um, you know, so did Obama. He reached out to his first appeals court nominee on January 30th. Biden, as we all know, had 11 nominees in his first list. So it was kind of a, a, a larger group of people in, in that first group that they were looking at. Explain how the nomination process works. Take us through it, because some people think that, you know, Biden just looks at the lists and decides who he wants, but it's more complicated than that. So it it is more complicated than that. Um, The Biden administration works with senators to um, look at nominees for their states, especially in the district court level. 
and blue slip is, is how senators will indicate their support for a nominee. It's an actual blue slip of paper in which they indicate their support. That is no longer in place for the appeals court nominee. As, um, the Republicans did away with that during the Trump administration, um, but they still have to work with senators for, for district court picks. In the Biden administration, is you know, trying to work with, with Democrats right now in the Senate. There's a few vacancies in, in red states and purple states as well. So that's that's a big part of the process. And, and uh, White House Counsel Dana Remus on the during the transition asked senators, Democratic senators, to um, make sure that they are, are forwarding names quickly and asked uh, senators to send names for already vacant seats by January 19th, the day before inauguration, and for any vacancies after that uh, within 45 days of the announced vacancy. So they're basically asking for people to speed up this process, to get quicker um, with this process so that on their end, they can, you know, do do things um, expeditiously as well. And on the White House end, you know, they're they're vetting the candidates, they're doing background checks on them, they're interviewing them. Um, their process, from what I've heard, is a lot of paperwork. So um, that also takes quite some time before they can actually formally nominate people. So why is the Biden administration seemingly in this rush to get nominees? They have four years in office. What is the rush? So part of the rush is that um, the the Senate majority is very slim. Uh, you know, Democrats have the uh, 50-50 split right now, very, a very slim margin, um, the slimmest of margins for the majority in the Senate. And uh, midterms often don't turn out well for, for the party in, in the White House. So what they're worried about or, or you know, what could happen um, is that in 2022, the Senate could change hands and getting judicial nominees advanced would become that much harder. If you have a Republican majority in the Senate, uh, they could easily block any of, of Biden's judicial picks that happened with, with President Barack Obama, his judicial nominees did not move forward when the Republicans were in control of the Senate. So I think that's a large part of why the administration would like to move quickly here. So you mentioned the early deadlines that the Biden administration set for the senators. Did all the senators make those deadlines? My colleague and I, uh, Courtney Rosen, who's our White House reporter, we took a look at at this and and spoke to the Senate offices and, and the commissions that they set up to help them vet picks before they can send them over the White House. We spoke to as many people as we could about how they were meeting those and, and found that some states were having difficulty meeting these deadlines. Uh, at least six states are having difficulty. A few states wouldn't tell us if they'd met the deadlines or not. And then there's a, there also is a handful of states that have met these deadlines. And you know, a few of those were on the president's first list of, of nominees. But the, the reasons why some people aren't meeting these deadlines is because the letter that Dana Remus set out during the transition also included some other really key elements the Biden administration is looking for in judicial nominees, like diversity of experience, racial and ethnic diversity. They're really looking for candidates who aren't currently represented on the federal court. And that is challenging for some Senate offices uh, to look for nominees who don't fit the mold of nominees they've looked for in the past. They're looking for new people. And, you know, we learned in one state in Massachusetts, um, Nancy Gertner, who's a former federal judge who chairs the commission there, told us that they couldn't meet the January 19th deadline specifically because they were looking for a more diverse pool. Some of the other reasons include, you know, getting a lot of, of applications for, for judicial nominations. In California, they've received over 300 judicial applications. 
They have 18 vacancies in the state at least right now. Uh, so they have a, a massive undertaking. Um, but senators are, are told us that they're working as, as quickly as they possibly can. And, and the White House also told us that they um, understand that senators are working on this and, and, and that it does take time to find these nominees. At the first hearings, the focus was on Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Tell us about her. So Katanji Brown-Jackson is a judge on the District of D.C. currently. She has public defense experience, and she was one of the nominees who was at this first Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. She's being talked about as a potential nominee for the Supreme Court. There isn't a vacancy yet, but she's one of the people that, that people think Biden would be likely to nominate. She's nominated to Merrick Garland's seat on the D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit is seen as kind of a springboard for Supreme Court nominees. It's considered the second highest court in the land. So if she's named there and liberals are eyeing Justice Breyer to maybe step down, it would be a quick turnaround if she were nominated to that seat, but maybe getting a little ahead of ourselves. So there was a lot of speculation by conservative activists that Republicans might give Jackson a hard time with tough questions about her record as a judge and reversals by the court she's nominated to sit on. So how did it go? So in large part, Republicans did ask tough questions and they, you know, tried to pin the the nominees down on how they felt about judicial activism, how they felt about controversial matters of law. But they received relatively little pushback. There was one instance where Senator Tom Tillis pulled up a clip from MSNBC talking about one of Katanji Brown-Jackson's decisions, saying it was written for a broad audience, kind of seeming to make the link Katanji Brown-Jackson potentially auditioning for the Supreme Court. But that was really the only instance where we had something that was, you know, a little bit more of aggressive exchange between the senators and the nominees. Is the opinion that he was referring to the one it involved former White House counsel Don McGahn and she said presidents aren't kings? That was the decision he was referring to. And I should note also in the hearing, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, the Republican, also mentioned that same phrasing and said that he's said that in the past before. All four of the nominees at the hearing are people of color. Were there any questions involving race? There was. So she and her fellow circuit court nominee, who was nominated to the Seventh Circuit, were both asked how their race they're both black, how their race would impact their decision-making, if at all, by Senator John Cornyn of Texas, who's a Republican. He was making the link that Democrats were making, you know, a huge deal out of diversifying the courts. And both of them said that their race would not make an impact on their decision-making. As I mentioned before the hearing, a lot of conservative activists were pointing to decisions that Jackson has made that have been reversed on appeal. And Carrie Severino, who is the president of the Conservative Judicial Crisis Network, told you that she's someone who has a record of being regularly overturned by the D.C. Circuit. What is her record as far as reversals? And did the Republicans question her about her record? So Republicans really didn't question her about this reversal record, um, even though this is something that I heard beforehand would potentially be something they would ask her about. Her record, she has decided about 600 cases, and it was mentioned at the hearing that 98% of them have not been reversed. So that was something that 
was maybe anticipated to be a bigger deal than it ended up being. And the questions she did get about that, kind of probing her to talk about her record, were, were mostly from Democrats. Were you expecting to see a hearing where there were some fireworks and a lot of tough confrontational questioning? I mean, I, I think the hearing was definitely different than a lot of people expected it to be um, in terms of the intensity with which some of the questions were being asked. It did seem that the answers from both nominees satisfied the senators who were asking them on, on both sides of the aisle. They were congratulated for their nominations. Uh, a few of the senators also um, you know, spoke about Katanji Brown Jackson's experience in the U.S. Sentencing Commission and, and applauded her for that. I, I think it was kind of a docile hearing as far as these hearings go, um, at least in, in my experience. Thanks, Madison. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.